At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all. I'm Heather here with my co-host and good friend, Elena, and our talented producer, Melanie. And you guys, Elena has a fascinating episode for you today. But before we jump in, we just have to send a huge thank you to April for suggesting today's episode. That's right. This has been on our list for a while, but when April emailed us with the suggestion, we knew we had to bump it up. Yeah, make it next on our list. For sure. So yeah, April, we appreciate that. Thanks so much. Yeah. So today I'll be talking about a case that has recently been the subject of a few new TV series. One starred Jessica Biel and the other starred Elizabeth Olsen. Did y'all watch either of those? I started the one with Jessica Biel, Mm -hmm. but I didn't finish it. Same thing. I was. I think it was the hair. It was, was weird like, to yeah, see her I looking can't. like that, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. Did you watch it, Mel? No, I didn't. And I think maybe because I've read so much about the story, I get. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't as interested just mm-hmm. because I knew, you know, from A to Z mm-hmm. what what was going on in it. Right. Well, if you haven't already guessed, listeners, our story today is about Candy Montgomery and the murder of her best friend and her lover's spouse, Betty Gore. Now, before we get to the details of the crime, let's set our scene and discuss the people and places involved. Wiley, Texas, where the crime occurred, sits at about 45 minutes northeast of Dallas and in the 80s was a town of roughly 3,700 people. Today, Wiley has grown to be a Dallas suburb of 60,000 people, but back in the 1980s, it was considered country, at least as country that was still close to the big city and beginning to be filled with suburban style track homes. And look, we all know that towns have a different vibe and reputation, and that's true for Wiley as well. It was considered a nice upper middle class area, a place where people moved to raise their families. It was particularly popular with young professionals working in the Silicon Prairie, the area of North Dallas where many technology corporations such as Texas Instruments was located. Yeah, that I mean, that's still sort of the Mm -hmm. the tech corridor of Mm -hmm. Dallas. Mm -hmm. Cool. So Betty Gore lived at 410 Dogwood Drive with her husband, Alan, and their two children, Alyssa and Bethany. Betty was a beloved fifth grade teacher at Dodd Elementary and Alan worked for an electronics company. Now, remember, this is the 80s and without Zoom and Google Meet and all those other post-pandemic tech that allowed us to work all from home, Alan had to travel for his job very often. They lived in a single story, 1,697 square foot Fox and Jacob home built in 1974. Oh, a good old Fox and Jacob home. We've sold a lot of those. Yeah, I guess they weren't building um, in Kentucky in the 80s. No, I don't think so. I'm sure every region had their own version of Fox and Jacob. Right. They were at the time the biggest home builders in Dallas. They built simple, like, suburban tract homes. Yeah. So, you know, essentially Fox and Jacobs was like a cookie cutter style builder using the same design, the materials in the whole neighborhood. Exactly. Do you you guys see them? So you still see them a lot today, like in Dallas, or is it more um, outside of Dallas? I run into them a lot in Carrollton, which is a suburb. Yeah, I would say that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like a closer in suburb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't sell a lot out in Wiley, but... Um, you know, closer in suburbs, you'll still see a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had it, never heard of it. I was just curious. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, yeah, it's one of those neighborhoods where your neighbor's house looks exactly like your house or like a mirror version of it. And now only a few towns over in Fairview live Candy Montgomery, her husband, Pat, and their two children, Jennifer and Ian. Candy was a homemaker and Pat was an electrical engineer at Texas Instruments. And let's just say they had the antithesis of a Fox and Jacobs home. When they designed their custom home, Candy called Dallas architect Stephen Chambers. 
Chambers built them a 2,400 square foot home at a time when people in suburban Dallas weren't calling architects to build for them. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a fairly small project for an architect. I mean, even in the 80s, and don't get me wrong, it's not that 2,400 square feet is small. For a custom home in a Texas suburb, that's not very big. Right. You're absolutely right. And while it wasn't huge, Candy liked to boast to people that she had the ultimate party house. In fact, it was at her home on Arroyo Blanco Drive that she hosted a baby shower for her dear friend, Betty Gore. According to their architect, Stephen Chambers, the home cost roughly $30 per square foot to build. And today it would have cost an estimated $500 per square foot to build. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The Gores and the Montgomerys met just down the way in Lucas at their shared church, the First United Methodist Church of Lucas. And yes, that's the third little town we mentioned. But just know, listeners, that these small towns, now suburbs, are relatively close to one another because they were built along the old railroads that dotted the countryside. So not only were the two couples friends, as often happens when families start spending time together, their oldest daughters became best friends, too. Yeah, or in our case, when your kids start hanging out, sometimes your parents become friends. But let's hope that our story doesn't have the same arc, because in the winter of 1978, things took an illicit turn after a rousing game of church volleyball. Oh, my God. Talk about words that you never think are going to be uttered in the same sentence. A rousing (laughs) game of church volleyball. Although, I guess, what did you say? This is what, 1978? Mm -hmm. So the guys were probably wearing some pretty tight little short shorts. (laughs) They definitely were. I've seen pictures of my dad in the 70s, and (laughs) they were definitely wearing (laughs) short shorts. So Candy and Betty's husband, Alan, both went toward the ball after it was lobbed onto their side of the net when they collided into each other. Don't tell me. It was kismet and they had like this instant connection. Yeah. Candy would later say that Alan smelled like sex. Oh. I know. Gross. That's, that is sort of yes. Yeah. And other, it was shortly after this that Candy approached Betty's husband about having an affair. Wait, what? She approached him, like just walked up and said, hey, do you want to have an affair? Actually, yeah. Apparently, one (laughs) evening after church choir practice, she worked up the courage to tell Alan that she was attracted to him. And according to a Texas Monthly Magazine article, not longer after putting that bug in his ear, she point blank asked him, quote, would you be interested in having an affair? And then in totally normal fashion, they had (laughs) several conversations about whether or not to have an affair. And get this, one night, Candy invited Alan over to her home to discuss the pros and the cons of the affair and to dine on her homemade lasagna. There, Candy had taped up butcher paper and drew two columns, one labeled whys and the other why nots. Obviously, as one does. Well, yeah, and this exercise proved useful because it was then that they decided that they would engage in the affair and they even set ground rules. I thought you would appreciate the formality in the list, Heather. Do you want to hear about the ground rules? Yeah. So, okay. So they did decide they were going to have this affair. They decided they were going to have the affair after weighing the pros and the cons. um, And the ground rules are... If either of them wanted to end the affair, they would, no questions asked. The affair would end if anyone got too emotionally invested or if they started taking risks that shouldn't be taken. Expenses such as food, motel, and gas would be split equally. That's very mature yeah. of them. Okay. That's very well thought out. Um, let me see. They decided they would only meet for trysts during the week when their spouses were at work. Candy would be in charge of preparing the lunch so that when they met during Alan's two-hour lunch break, they would have more time. Oh, my God. I can just see her in the kitchen, like, trying to figure out what is the most expeditious food she can serve her lover. Like, is it soup or mashed potatoes? You know, definitely not something that requires, like, a knife to cut You're and getting time. really complicated <laughs> with this, as was Candy, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, in addition to making the lunch, Candy was also in charge of getting the motel room. So they laid out a schedule that they would meet on Tuesday or Thursday once every two weeks when Candy's youngest son was at preschool. They even set a date for the first encounter, December 12th, 1978. 
Well, talk about well thought out. That is super responsible of them. But all I can picture is Candy showing up to like drop her son off at preschool and she's all dolled up like a short skirt or something. And all the other moms are in yoga attire. Okay, this is 78. There was no Lululemon yoga oh, attire okay. being worn back then. But if this were happening right Jazz- now. Jazzercise. Jazzercise. <laughs> <laughs> Some leg warmers. Yeah. Band. Okay. I love it. So all this planning doesn't really set the mood for me. But Heather, I feel like that could kind of get you going. All <laughs> yeah. the type A stuff. Yeah. Oh, Lordy. Huh? We digress here. <laughs> Um, so with all the rules and times outlined, the well-planned affair begins. And on the morning of the 12th, Candy went about her usual business, dropping her kids to school before returning home to start the lunch that she and Alan would have. Marinated chicken, salad with Thousand Island dressing, white wine and cheesecake. And I want to do a quick poll. Thousand Island or ranch? Oh, ranch. 100%. Mel? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thousand Island. What? How for my I- salad, Thousand Island, and for fries, ranch. I'm not even sure I know what Thousand Island tastes like. Yummy? Okay. I feel like you may have to take your Texas resident card away from you. (laughs) I put ranch where it goes. Fries and pizza. (laughs) Oh, that's fair. Yeah. It's also good on fries and pizza. Yeah. Um, So at 11 a.m., Candy pulled into the parking lot of the Continental Inn. And $29 later, with a picnic basket (laughs) in hand, she walked up to room 213. Before Alan arrived, Candy set the lunch up and put on her pink negligee. Oh, my God. This this is so weird to me. Yeah. It's like almost robotic. Yeah. Well, you know, this was the 70s. And there is that like, you know, like they didn't they, you know, used to have like sex parties. And you've, that's like the second or third time you've brought up sex parties in the 70s. Maybe this is what I just think of, like the, these key parties and, you know. If I had a nickel for every time you said key party in the 70s. <laughs> we well, would have 25 cents. Excellent. Okay. No, I don't know. Maybe we need to read. That is definitely not the kind of parties we are having these days. Yeah. Yeah. We're well, just trying to keep I mean, the kids maybe alive. The, maybe the parties that you're not invited to. Oh, oh well, that's why. I'm oh, feeling okay. so left out. She's trying to test the waters. That's why she keeps saying it. <laughs> Well, they must have enjoyed their plane to the tea time together because by the next week they were meeting up again. This time at the Como Motel. Candy, ever the frugal housewife, was pleased to pay less as the Como had a cheaper rate of only $23.50 for the room. Well, I mean, a bargain is a bargain. (laughs) So now the wheels are off this thing. Candy and Alan are meeting on the regular at the Como Motel. They're having lunch, drinking wine, engaging in their affair, and chatting about life and church. They would then shower and leave the motel to return to their normal lives. And it won't surprise you that it wasn't before long the affair moved from being just physical to emotional, too. The two started trading silly greeting cards and trinkets. Candy would leave baked goodies on Alan's car windshield on days that he didn't leave the office for the motel. And about two and a half months after the affair started, Candy told Alan that she was getting in too deep and feared that she was falling in love with him. But Alan wasn't ready to end things and was easily able to talk Candy into not calling the whole thing off. So the affair continues, even when Betty became pregnant with their second child. In June, though, Alan began to fear that Betty would go into labor while he was at the Coma Motel. So he told Candy that he wanted to pause the affair. Candy agreed and even hosted a surprise baby shower during the hiatus. But as soon as Alan and Betty's baby, Bethany, was born in mid-July, they resumed their affair. But as the saying goes, all things must come to an end. And by late summer of 1980, Alan approaches Candy about dissolving their relationship. And just as it started with formalities, organization, and conversations, the relationship ends with one last rendezvous and a discussion about how they're going to continue their lives with each other without being intimate any longer. 
when you say that they're continuing to share their lives, is it because, you know, they're family, family friends, they mm-hmm. go to church together? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure, like, they were going to have, like, be phone friends now. Oh, no, uh-uh. Okay. Gosh, phone friends, key parties. <laughs> Just, like, nonstop on the brain, Melanie. We're not into it. <laughs> Mel's feeling sexy these days. I love it. So after a year and a half, the affair is over. Oh, no. I guess they'll just have to go back to being with their spouses. I I don't know. I just, I'm not loving this whole affair under their spouse's nose. If you're going right. to have an affair, like, don't do it with your best friend's spouse. That's even worse. It, yeah. It, yeah. And apparently they kept, li- like, just on, like, living their lives like it was nothing. Like, they felt completely comfortable at church with each other. And it's weird. Yeah. Really weird. Yeah. Okay. So for the next seven months, they do figure out how to live without being intimate. But remember, the couple are still friends who hang out together and go to church together. And Candy still has Gore's oldest daughter, Alyssa, over to spend time with her daughter. It's not a clean break in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So for the purposes of this story, let's fast forward to June of 1980. Alan is out of town on a business trip. Betty is home with baby Bethany. And Alyssa, Alan and Betty's oldest daughter, is with the Montgomery family. Alan called home from his business trip like he would do every day, but became concerned when Betty didn't answer. After several attempts to contact her, Alan called his neighbor, a real estate agent, Richard Parker, and asked him to go knock on the door. I like how it always goes back to a real estate agent. Did you look up his license? I did not look up his license. Um, But real estate agents are good at opening doors. Like if you're (laughs) going to call somebody to get into a house, we're pretty adept at doing that. That should be your new motto, (laughs) Heather Group. Maybe it's really just really good like, at opening doors. Maybe it's like <laughs> more than just opening doors. <laughs> oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. That's good. That's good. When Richard was unable to get a hold of Betty, Alan called Candy. Of course, his instinct was to call his former mistress. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, Heather. But remember, Candy and Betty are still friends, and Candy is acting totally normal in her relationship with Betty. So normal, in fact, that Candy had gone over to Alan and Betty's house earlier that day to get a swimming suit for Alyssa, who, remember, was playing with Candy's daughter at Candy's house. Candy told Alan that Betty seemed just fine when she saw her earlier in the day. Candy even offered to go to the home and check on Betty herself. But instead of taking her up on the offer, Alan called Richard back and asked him to go check to see if her car was in the garage. Upon learning from Richard that her car was gone and the garage was open, he asked Richard to go back over there and check the doors. He thought that maybe if Betty had to leave for an emergency of some sort, she would have left a note. Reluctantly, Richard went back across the street to check on the home. This time, he could tell that both cars were in the garage, one was just pulled further in so he couldn't see it previously. I want to note really fast. At first, I was like, oh, he was like being kind of crappy. Like he was really upset about going back. But then I was like, oh, it was the 80s. Like he didn't take his cell phone with him and talk to him the whole way. Like he had to like hang up the phone and walk across the street and open, you know, all that. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of back and forth. Yeah. So I get that. Okay. Uh, but I don't know how you don't know that the car's not there. Maybe like the garage door's not open all the way. Maybe it's just partially so you can't really see. Well, I think that it was like an alley entrance. So he okay. like kind of like glanced around. He had made it. He, it oh, yeah, I he see. Had, he's on the fence. I see. I'm picturing yeah. like a front garage right. just open right. all the way. And you're like, how can you not tell there are two cars <laughs> right. here or there are not two cars here? Okay, right. That makes more yep. sense. Yep. So when Richard went back over there, he could see that the lights in the house were on. And when he reported this to Alan, Alan asked that Richard return once more for the fourth time and try to get into the house in any way he could. At this point, Alan is really concerned. So he called a man by the name of Jerry McMahon, a former co-worker who lived across the alley. And he asked him to go over to check on the situation as well. Can I just pause for a second? Because I think it's funny because 
we're so used to nowadays having our cell phones. And so all of our contacts saved mm-hmm. into the cell mm-hmm. phones. So I'm picturing the fact that he must have like a like a little Rolodex, uh, like one of those like little con- like telephone books, you know, in his suitcase, in his brief, not suitcase, briefcase, wherever he's traveling to. Because otherwise I'm like, how would I know how to con, like I wouldn't know the phone numbers of be- any of my random neighbors. Maybe they had like an operator too, right? An operator? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you could have forgotten about that. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Okay. Anyway, things that we don't, uh, Chuck, that are things we don't have nowadays. Right, right. So when he received the call from Alan, Jerry reached out to another neighbor, Lester Gaylor, and asked him to go to the home to investigate with him. So he's in full on panic mode at this point. I mean, there are three different neighbors who are going to go and try and get into this house and check on Betty. Right. Yeah, he's really scared at this point. And the three men make their way back over to the house and weigh their options on how they're going to get into the house. But to their surprise, the front door was unlocked. They call out to Betty as they make their way into the home and then continue walking room to room as they try to figure out where Betty could be. They then heard a baby cry out. They made their way to Bethany's room where they found her sitting in her crib, soiled and hoarse. Richard grabbed baby Bethany and ran out of the house and back to his home to call police. Jerry and Lester stayed behind to continue the search for Betty. When they got to the utility room, they found her and massive amounts of blood, so much blood that the men thought she had been shot. When the men broke the news to Alan, Alan instinctively called Candy. He broke the news to her and asked her to continue keeping an eye on Alyssa until he arrived back in Texas. The next day, Candy tried her best to keep herself busy with household tasks, but spent the day answering the phone, fielding calls from friends and church congregants. On one of the many calls that Candy fielded that day, she learned that there was a rumor going around that Betty had been shot. In fact, she had actually been killed with an axe, and the police had found a bloody footprint at the scene of the crime. Later that day, Candy grabbed a pair of gardening shears and began cutting up her rubber sandals. Okay, wait. First of all, I think this makes four stories now that we've covered where someone was murdered with an axe. I guess I just didn't realize that was that popular of a murder weapon. You know, kind of like this was a suburban track, you know, yeah, uh, middle America home. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. do they need an axe? But do we know, Elena, where Candy's husband is at this point in the story? I mean, does he see her cutting up her rubber sandals? Is no. he like acting weird? Right. I mean, if one of my best friends had just been murdered, I feel like my husband would be like right around me, being very mm-hmm. supportive. What can I do to help you out? Being, you know, attentive and sweet. I didn't really find a lot of information about Pat, her husband. There's not a lot written about him that I could find. So as far as I can tell, it was just business as usual. Okay. At, okay. at the Montgomery home that day. She was just cutting up rubber shoes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but it should come as no surprise that Candy soon became the main person of interest in Betty's murder because by her own admission, she was seemingly the last person to have seen her alive. When Alan reported to the police that the two were having an affair and ended things seven months prior, they had their motive and Candy was charged with the murder of Betty Gore. According to an article in Elle magazine, quote, on June 13th, 1980, Candy went over to Betty's house to borrow a swimsuit. But unbeknownst to her, Betty had been stewing on her suspicions for a long time. And out of the blue, she confronted her, asking Candy if she was having an affair with Alan. She initially denied it, but then confessed. At that point, according to the version of events that was presented at trial, Betty left the room and reappeared holding an axe. As Candy tried to apologize to her for the affair and told her it had been over for months, Betty swung at her with the axe, screaming, you can't have him. I'm going to have a baby and you can't have him this time. A vicious fight ensued and ultimately Candy wrestled the axe away from Betty. She raised it over her head and brought it down again and again on Betty, chopping into her more than 40 times. 
When she finally stopped, it was only because she was too physically exhausted to carry on. And ladies, Betty was reportedly alive for all but one, of, one or two of the wax with a three foot long axe. An eerie fact, the murders took place on Friday the 13th. Wow. Okay. I mean, 40. That's a lot. With an, uh, yeah. I'm not in shape enough to do no, that. No, that would hurt. Yeah. Um, but apparently Betty wasn't as in the dark about Alan and Candy as she thought she was or as everybody thought she was. I have like really mixed feelings on that. Like, I feel like if she knew that she wouldn't have allowed Alyssa to go over there. I, I, I don't know. I have so you feelings. don't think this is an accurate story. You think this is just something Candy made up. In my most later. humble of humble opinions. Yes. Okay. Like an excuse. Right. Interesting. I hadn't considered that. Okay. Yeah. I sort of hope she didn't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's a tough one. Mel, do you have an opinion? I mean, I know you have an opinion. What's your opinion? I don't know. I, d- I don't know. I, I'm, I'm willing to say that maybe he... The axe part is weird. Like, you know, how would... You know, if, if, I'm assuming it really was Betty's family axe because it was... Otherwise, I think it would have come out that Candy brought an axe over mm-hmm. there with her. Um, yeah, I don't know. The whole story is just suspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this story in and of itself is a lot to take in, but the trial afterward was a three-ring circus. Candy claimed self-defense, saying that Betty shushed her, which triggered an old childhood trauma. When Candy took the stand, she said, quote, I hit her, I hit her, and I hit her. She fell slowly, almost to a sitting position. I kept hitting her and hitting her. I felt so guilty, so dirty. I felt so ashamed. And y'all, this defense worked. After an eight-day trial, the jurors voted to acquit Candy for the murder of Betty Gore. Wait, what? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. A lot of people felt the same way as you do, Heather, and protesters were actually lining the streets outside the courthouse after the verdict. Candy and Pat quickly moved out of Texas to start over after the trial, and get this, Candy went on to become a family counselor. Stop it. I mean, that's crazy. Talk about disclosure issues. I mean, if you're a counselor who's been charged with murder and also confessed to murder, do you have to tell your yeah, patients seriously. that? Like, who's going to hire you? I would think the same thing you definitely don't get anger management clients right you don't get marital (laughs) no like what are you counseling on i don't know that's a good question of all the things she could have chosen to do (laughs) right that's really odd okay she changed her name too well you would have to yeah that i'm not surprised about so candy and pat stayed together a few more years but ended up divorcing and alan apparently quickly remarried the church organist. Oh, they just do not get outside of this little <laughs> right. church, do they? <laughs> right. It's the sexy it's church. It's a lot of act. Dang. I had to. There's a lot of action in that um, church. So he didn't raise his girls. They were raised by Betty's parents, but it seems as though the girls and Alan have since reconciled. You want to know what happened with the house? Uh, yeah, I do. It looks like the property has changed hands six or seven times since the murder. It's been remodeled. With the kitchen opened up to the living room and that open concept floor plan that families really want these days. Most recently, it was listed in March of 2022 for $344,900 and sold in four days, a little over asking. You'll be pleased to know that in the private remarks for agents, the listing agent noted, Wiley Axe murder took place in this house on June 13, 1980. What, what is a agent private remarks? It's in the MLS. It's a note for agents to see to each other. And so like if you're looking on Zillow or if your agent mm-hmm. sends you homes through MLS, you don't see it. People don't see it. Just agents, just private information. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, what, what, what would be an example of like a more mundane private thing that you would see? I see a lot of things on like, you know, 
Seller does not have a survey. Buyer will need to buy a new survey. Just very, it's very like matter of fact. Business. Informa- yeah. yeah that, e- e- okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of boring. I, yeah. I was wondering if there were things like, oh, you know. My client sucks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, I wish I'll, it was I'll more salacious. My, uh, that would be more interesting. I'll split <laughs> yeah. my commission with you if anything I can do to get out of this client. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. Nothing like that. Yeah. It's just, it's not the sexy version okay. of selling the house. It's more the nuts and bolts. But props to this agent. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did it like head on well and th- that's about as matter of fact as you can put it <laughs> yeah I, I love it i like how it's the wiley axe murder versus you know a i don't know I'm a murderer i don't know i feel like you could have not used the word axe <laughs> yeah all true true uh so it, think- it's wait well hold on but mm-hmm. it's descriptive you know exactly what <laughs> she's talking about you're not just like a murder you're like okay i know which the one murder so i'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole now like i've You've told me the information I need. Now I don't have to research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. even over, what, 40 years later. I mean, that's kind of cool that it's in there even 40 years later. Right. Right. So what do you think? List it. Would you live there? Okay. I would both list it and live there. But I will say, because when we were doing the research on the story, you sent me sort of the link to the house. It's a huge mudroom sort of off of the house where the crime occurred. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't feel like the crime really occurred in the heart of the home. <laughs> and that makes a difference to me. And also there weren't children involved in the crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'd live there, I think. Okay. Mel? Yeah, I mean, like 40 years later, it feels like things, like a lot of the bad juju is, has gone away. I don't have to say it's really cute. We're not going to post pictures of the house as it is now because a lovely family, I'm sure, lives there and will respect their privacy. We can post some pictures of what it looked like back then, but they've nicely updated it. Yeah. Although I'm kind of more interested in in Candy's house. Like, I wonder what, you know, how that's held up over the years. Ooh, maybe we can uh, do a little follow up. Yeah, Yeah, social post on that. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, Yeah. no, I just, just because that sounded interesting that it was an architect designed home. Yeah. and as somebody that's just built a home, like when he was saying $500 a square foot to build, like that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I could not find the sh- the actual number address of the home, just the street name. But apparently that area of Fairview has all kinds of houses, like little like gingerbread looking houses and like castle looking houses. Like I guess at that time that was like a thing like you, I don't know. Like unique. Just a unique oh, little I- houses. The never I- look the same. I like anything that's unique. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, it, 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 I'll do a little digging. If I can find it, we'll post that later. Yeah, I love but it. But just kind of curious because I know the focus is on be- the Gore house, mm-hmm. but it sounds like the Montgomery house is kind of interesting yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Alana, this story was just fascinating all around. Thank you so much for this episode. And thanks to April for recommending it via our email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. Yes, April. Um, We really appreciate the rack. And if you're loving the podcast, we'd also really appreciate you leaving us a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And in your review, tell us why you think it'd be fun to do a live Zoom mini-sode with your podcast club or just, you know, your group of your closest friends over uh, wine or margaritas. Um, We're hoping to do one interactive podcast a quarter. You could join us and you'll get full access to the crazy that goes on behind the scenes. We're really looking forward to this and we'll notify winners on our Instagram page. So make sure you sign your review with your Insta handle and follow the show so you know if you're the lucky winner.
Yeah, that's right. We'll announce the winners quarterly. So make sure you share the podcast with your friends. Leave us a review as well as to increase your chances of winning. It's going to be so fun. Um, like you said, you'll get to see all sort of the shenanigans that go on behind uh, behind the scenes and that we leave on the cutting room floor. I mean, the things that are going on the cutting room floor from this episode could be their own <laughs> amazing episode. So you'll get a little behind the scenes peek and that'll be fun. That's it for this episode. We'll be back with another Crime State next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.